there was a strain of Zionism that actually took the pagan earth worship, the blood and soil connection that uh, the pagan had with his land, and pretended that that's the relationship between the Jew and the Holy Land. In Amos Elon's book, The Israelis, Founders and Sons, he describes it like this, quote, The reverence Zionist socialism manifested towards the land, nature, and physical communion between man and nature is far more evocative of paganism than of Judaism, end quote. Welcome to Committing High Reason, a podcast where we dissect important topics such as good versus evil, religion versus no religion, Zionism versus Judaism, and our pet peeve, political propaganda. Committing High Reason will give you tools to strengthen your intellectual independence, enhance your critical thinking, and hopefully acquire some very new perspectives. Now, here's your host, Rabbi Yaakov Shapiro. I had already chosen a topic for today's podcast, but because of the unrest taking place in Israel, I decided I need to address it. I want to explain why these particular people run around with Israeli flags, specifically in neighborhoods that they know their actions will be provocative, singing and dancing. This is the inevitable byproduct of a particular strain of Zionism that has evolved for almost a hundred years. But before I explain where this Zionism comes from, I would be doing the listener an injustice if I would not explain first and foremost, that this is not Judaism that is motivating them. It's strange. Once upon a time, Zionists would make fun of Orthodox Jews. They would mock them and belittle them because they were so nonviolent. They would actually write literature, stories, and poems, satires of what they would call the ghetto Jews, Jews like me, Orthodox Jews, mocking us with all sorts of horrific stereotypes and all sorts of horrific stereotypes and caricatures, both literal caricatures, drawings, and, and, and in their literature. And their complaint against us is that we don't like violence. Judaism does believe in an us and them. We have an enemy. We have an other with a capital O. And the other is our sins. Righteous behavior brings from God good things. Sinful behavior brings bad things. This has always been the Jewish outlook. And in the face of persecution for thousands of years, Jews reacted by returning to God. We looked at oppression as the result of imperfect behavior. It's our theology. And if somebody doesn't want to believe in our theology and our religion, I'm not here to try to convince people to convert to Judaism, but that was what Judaism preached. Since biblical times, since after biblical times, it was prohibited for Jews to wage war. We wanted only to live in peace, segregated, but in peace. Our mission was to be, as the Bible says, a kingdom of priests and a holy society, a holy people, like I know it's different, but by way of analogy, monks on a hilltop. We wanted to lead the lifestyle of priests, to study our holy books, to pray our prayers. And we had our own theology regarding suffering. We had our own theology regarding our concept of strength, 
Ezehu Gibor HaKoyveshes Yisroi, who is strong, he who conquers himself. Ezehu Mechubed HaMachabedes Habriois, who is honored, he who honors others. Ezehu Oshir, who is rich. HaSameach Bechelkoi, somebody who is happy with his lot. And all we wanted was to live life according to the Torah, studying, praying, and fulfilling our mitzvahs. If somebody didn't like that, they had a choice. They're free to go and convert to another religion or to no religion. But the Zionists hated us for it. They mocked us. Our pacifism, our idea of strength being spiritual and not physical, our values, Chaim Nachman Bialik, perhaps the most skilled poet the Zionists have ever produced, wrote a poem. It's called City of Slaughter. It's a satire of Jews being attacked in a pogrom. Men, cowards, watching from their hiding places. Their wives are raped and they don't really care. Afterwards, all they do is crawl out from spaces and life goes on. The poem ends by blaming God and the Jewish religion. Let fists fly against the throne of glory meaning God's throne. So isn't it strange? Once upon a time, the Zionists would mock us, we Orthodox Jews, for being pacifists. Vladimir Jabotinsky once wrote derisively about the Orthodox Jews, how they, quote, despised physical manhood, the principle of male power as understood and worshipped by all free people in history. Physical courage and physical force were of no use Prowess of the body was an object of ridicule. End quote. Yes, worshipped by all free peoples in history. We had a God to worship. And it's not, quote-unquote, the principle of male power. So isn't it ironic that the Orthodox Jews, who once upon a time, not long ago, were mocked and derided by the Zionists for being pacifists, are now found running through the streets of Jerusalem, driven by an organic nationalism, that they know will lead to violent clashes. Who are these people? I want to explain who they are and why they do what they do. In order to understand where these people came from, we need to take a step back and go back to the origins of Zionism, in particular, the relationship between Zionism and Judaism. Now, everybody knows that Zionism was the opponent of Judaism. It was created by secular Jews, anti-religious Jews, Jews like Herzl, Jews like Jabotinsky, Jews like Moses Hess, who hated the religion, absolutely hated Judaism. And the main purpose of Zionism was to create a new type of Jew that would be different than the traditional Jew. They tried just assimilating and not being Jewish, but that didn't work because in the late 1800s there were pogroms in Russia and even the assimilated Jews were attacked. So they figured, we didn't do a good enough job escaping being Jewish. We have to transform Jewishness and not escape from it. And so Zionism was born. The goal of Zionism, in the words of Jabotinsky, was, and I quote, to create a new type of person, a new personality, new character, that was, this is what Jabotinsky said, the exact, the diametric opposite of a jid. A jid is a derogatory term used to describe a Jew, because a jid is ugly, sickly, and lacks handsomeness. The Zionists, he referred to them as the Hebrews, are going to have massive shoulders, 
They're going to be endowed with masculine beauty. They're going to be proud and know how to command. Max Nordau created the concept of muscle Jews. That's exactly what he called them. He was going to create muscle Jews, which were, of course, the opposite of the Mamalechus Kaihanim, the Goy Kodosh Jew, of the opposite of the kingdom of priests and holy people Jew. Zionism set out to transform the Jewish character and personality. The transformation in the simplest terms was from a religion to a nationality. All the values, the religious values of Judaism would turn into the values of a nation. Instead of aspiring to become great Torah scholars and righteous rabbis, they would aspire to win Nobel Prizes and Eurovision Song Contests. Instead of the strength of self-conquest, there would be actual military strength. Zionism was unique amongst the modern movements in that it set out to create an entirely new people from scratch. They wanted nothing to do with the old Judaism, old Jewish identity, and they wanted to erase the content of Jewishness and replace it with whatever it is that they felt the Jews should be. Again, they didn't want to not be Jews. They tried that and it didn't work. If only they could transform the Jews into muscle Jews, into normal people, a lot less ugly than the Orthodox Jews, anti-Semitism will end. The thing is, different Zionists had different ideas of what they wanted Jews to be. What they all wanted to do was to take Judaism or Jewish identity and use it kind of as a template, meaning they're going to still retain the label of Jewishness, they're going to still be called Jews, they're going to keep the Jewish symbols, the Bible, not that it matters what the Bible says, they're going to just keep it as a, a national symbol. You see, all people have these symbols and mythologies and histories, and they couldn't start from scratch, they create a new people. Actually, they, they, there were Zionists, pseudo-Zionists, who actually tried. They called themselves the Canaanim. They said that they are a new type of people, they are Canaanim, they're not Jews, they're not Christians, they're a new type of people. Never, it, it wasn't successful, it actually fizzled. The establishment Zionists, guys like Herzl, they understood that if you want to be successful and you want to attract Jews, it won't work if you tell them not to be Jews. So they wanted to keep being Jewish, but they wanted to change what it means to be Jewish. They all agreed on what they didn't want Jewish identity to be. They didn't want Jewish identity to be spiritual. They all wanted to empty Jewishness of the content that it had throughout history and replace it with something. It's just that the Zionists disagreed what to replace it with. There were left-wing Zionists, there were communist Zionists, there were right-wing fascist Zionists, there were the middle-of-the-road Zionists, there were Zionists that believed in all types of ideologies, and different Zionists had different ideas for how to design the new Jewish people. And, and that's why we have different political parties today in Israel. And at the end of the day, the mix of ideologies that, and even religions that the Zionists used in order to create the new Hebrew man was a motley mix and match of various different uh, philosophies and ideologies and even religions. Evangelical Christianity had a lot of influence on Zionism, the whole idea about the Jews returning to the land and, and such is not taken from Judaism. Judaism was anti-Zionist. This was taken from evangelical Christianity, which existed centuries before 
Theodor Herzl was born. One day we'll have a podcast on the influence of evangelical Christianity on Zionism. Zionism had a big dose of Nietzschean um, Superman philosophy. There are many Zionists that were into that. Russian workers' movements, German romanticism. But today I want to mention two particular ideologies that were very influential to a particular type of Zionism, and that's where the settlers come from, paganism and militarism. First, the paganism. See, the, the challenge the Zionists had to deal with was they wanted to retain the Jewish, as I said, template of Jewishness, the symbols, but they wanted to replace the content with new meaning. So the Jews have a holy land, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, not the state of Israel, the land of Israel. The concept of the Holy Land has nothing to do with sovereignty. It was equally holy under the Turks and under the Mamluks, and even under the Romans. Remember, the temple, the second temple, existed in the, under the Roman rulership. There's nothing in Judaism that ties our relationship to the Holy Land with sovereignty over it. In fact, we all know that without a Messiah, we're not even allowed to have possession of the Holy Land. But not only did the Zionists violate the halacha, Jewish law, by creating their state, they changed the entire relationship between the Jew and the Holy Land. Not only did they make it into a national homeland, which it's not, but there was a certain type of Zionists, not all, that took that template. Template is relationship between Jew and the land and changed it from a spiritual relationship, a relationship between a holy people and a holy land, to the relationship between a pagan and the physical, organic connection that a pagan has with his earth. It's a very strange thing, because pagans were idol worshippers, and, well, that the Zionists actually, there was a strain of Zionism that actually took the, the worship of the earth, the pagan earth worship, the blood and soil connection that uh, the pagan had with his land and pretended that that's the relationship between the Jew and the Holy Land. Amnon Rubinstein, in his book From Herzl to Rabin, describes it thus, quote, Within Zionism, there grew a non-Jewish, even anti-Jewish sentiment stirring in its strength and in its longings for the pagan and the Gentile. End quote. In Amos Elon's book, The Israelis, Founders and Sons, he describes it like this, quote, The reverence Zionist socialism manifested towards the land, nature, and physical communion between man and nature is far more evocative of paganism than of Judaism, end quote. And you see this type of thing amongst various Zionists, a certain strain of Zionism. In 1899, the Russian Zionist Shol Chernochovsky, who's uh, he was a Zionist poet, and he's I think he's on the Israeli 50, 50 shekel notes today. He wrote a poem. <laughs> the poem is called Lenoichach Pesel Apollo, which means facing a statue of Apollo. Apollo, yes, the Greek god. This is a Jew writing a, a poem about him standing in front of the Greek god Apollo. Here are some excerpts. 
I come to you, long-forgotten God of ancient times and forgotten days. I come to you, do you remember me? I am the Jew, your ancient enemy. All the heavens and the endless forests were too small to bridge the gap between my father's children and your worshippers. Yet look at me. I've come far. I'm the first of my race to return to you and to turn again to the living earth. I come to you, and before your pedestal I bow. I bow to life, to beauty and strength. I bow to all the passionate urges that the living dead, the bloodless ones, the sick ones, have smothered in the real God, the God of wonders of the wilderness, the God of gods who stormed Canaan in conquest, before they bound him with the straps of the tefillin. End quote. This ugly composition this anti-Jewish, anti-Semitic descriptions of, uh, of Jews as living dead and bloodless. That's exactly what Zionism believed. The cure to these Zionists was a, a return to this, as he says, passionate urges, the, the living earth, to... Gods like Apollo. The last line, by the way, about binding God with straps of tefillin means that the Jews, the Orthodox Jews, constricted God with their Judaism. So there was a strain of Zionism that wanted to make the Jews into pagans, a, a land worship. Now the settlers, they absorbed this brand of Zionism. Their relationship to the land is pagan. They have stories about, in general, even without settlers particularly, there's an old Zionist story of the, um, the soldier Joseph Trumpador, who in the Battle of Tel Chai was killed, and uh, the story, the legend goes, about how his blood seeped into the ground, fertilized it, and caused a red poppy flower to grow out of the ground. This is a, a description of a relationship between a human being's blood and the earth, similar to a man and a woman of fertilization and a birth. But the settlers in particular have still retained this type of paganistic relationship to the earth. The, most Zionists have, have dropped this, but the settlers kept it. There's a, um, a Zionist story about the oak tree of Gush Etzion. Gush Etzion is a settlement that, that has this oak tree. And there are legends about the oak tree. In one of the stories, there's um, a kid named Oded. His father was killed in the battle of Gush Etzion. And as Oded finds himself in the vicinity of the tree, quote, he began to have a strange feeling, as if something was drawing him in a certain direction. End quote. What he feels is the pull of the tree. As he gets closer to it, he finds actual physical changes taking place within him. Quote, Without wanting it, he wandered around until he reached the place where the ancient oak tree in Jordanian territory stood opposite him. End quote. His mother comes to visit him from Jerusalem and she says to him, quote, Did you know, Oded? That's the oak tree. 
our oak tree, the oak tree of Gush Etzion. Your father met his death next to that tree. And the story continues. He suddenly understood everything. He understood the connection, the emotion which had always overcome him. He understood why each time his legs had always drawn him to that place. It seemed like he was linked to that tree through his roots, through his soul, through his parents, and through his birth. That's just one small example. There are many. Somebody may ask at this point, how is it that Orthodox Jews, after all, the settlers are Orthodox Jews, have accepted literally an idolatrous conception of the Holy Land? And the answer, long story short, because it is a very long story, perhaps for some future podcast, the settler community was founded by Rabbi Abraham Cook and later came under the tutelage of his son, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Cook. These cooks had a very odd view, and it's unique to them. And the reason it's unique to them is because it doesn't come from Judaism. It comes from 19th century nationalist philosophy. And they believed and they taught that Zionism, the nationalist movement called Zionism, the political movement called Zionism, is actually a manifestation of the soul of the Jewish people, the kind of, in, in the Hegelian concept where uh, nations are the unit and the people, the members of the nations are just like cells in the body, but the, the nation is, is, is one body with a unimind sort of. Any body that contributes to the furtherance of the national model of the Jewish people is working for God, which means at bottom that all Zionism, all the Zionist ideas, the ideas that were created or concocted by people like Jabotinsky and the like, these pagan ideas, because they were created by Zionists for the sake of building up the national model, that becomes Judaism. Now, his people don't realize, well, most of them don't, where the Rabbi's Cook got this stuff from. The elder Rabbi Cook wrote it down in fancy Hebrew, and when many of his students read this, and when many people see this, they think it must be some type of Jewish mysticism, something so deep they can't understand it. When in reality, it's nothing but 19th century nationalist philosophy. Yet they accepted it as part of their, their Judaism. Rabbi Cook was roundly condemned for this, obviously. This is the antithesis of Judaism. But this doctrine that Zionism and whatever the Zionists put out, whatever contributes to the, the formation of the, the nation of the Jews is by definition Judaism is holy. So they accepted this pagan concept of the Holy Land, even though it's pagan because it's also Zionist and that makes it holy. They also accepted, this is the second philosophy that I want to mention, the militarism of Jabotinsky. Now the older Rabbi Cook, by the way, was not a militant, on the contrary, he was a pacifist. If he would be here today, he would be against all these wars that Israel is involved in. In fact, there are those that say, I'm not sure that they're correct, but there are those that say that if the elder Rabbi Cook was here today, or 1948, he would not approve of the creation of the state of Israel because he was a pacifist. And any state that would involve the necessity of war would not be acceptable to him. Be that as it may, his son, Tzvi Yehuda, was a big militant. And under his tutelage, the settler community accepted 
the militarism of the Vladimir Jabotinsky school of Zionism. Benjamin Netanyahu's father, who was a historian in Yale University and also the personal secretary of Vladimir Jabotinsky, described how Jabotinsky elevated the value of militarism to the level of the mystical and the spiritual. Jabotinsky and his followers were not, they weren't satisfied for militarism to be merely a tool to protect Jews. I should really say military as a tool to protect Jews. To the revisionists, that was the name of Jabotinsky's uh, group, who, by the way, later morphed into today's Likud, the ruling party in Israel. To the revisionists, military is not merely a way to defend one's country. It's an actual ideal. Quote, Jabotinsky viewed military service as not only a duty performed for the sake of honor, a civil and human duty, but even a sublime value that the state is based upon. End quote. We need to digest this. Military service is not a duty, not merely a duty, but a sublime value. And not just a sublime value. It's a sublime value that the state is based upon. Jabotinsky therefore agreed to introduce into the Jewish state even hardened criminals who served out their sentences, but he refused to let army deserters in from any country. Said the senior Netanyahu about Jabotinsky's philosophy, quote, military education also contains certain exalted values which only it can impart. Exalted values, Jabotinsky himself said, quote, this is the third attempt to forge the Zionist movement. Pinsker made the first attempt, Herzl made the second, and we're currently engaged in the third. The revisionist movement will develop and grow. It will become a majority within Zionism and then will become Zionism itself. Beitar, which was Jabotinsky's youth group, the militant youth group, quote, Beitar will be the moral and spiritual lawgiver for all Jewish youth. End quote. Moral and spiritual lawgiver. By the way, an example, one of the less violent of the moral and spiritual laws handed down by these Beitarians was their habit of beating up Jews who spoke Yiddish instead of Hebrew. Militaristic nationalism was glorified by Jabotinsky and his revisionists, just like it was glorified by other nationalisms in other militant countries. The sword was not just a tool with which to protect oneself, but a value, a mark of honor, a way to be proud of oneself. Jabotinsky's militarism is another value that the settler community absorbed. But we're not done yet. The settler community also believes that the messianic redemption is unfolding in front of our eyes even as we speak. They've believed it for decades, years. They believe that they are, their wars, they believe that their wars are messianic wars. This is something that one of their rabbis wrote, Shlomo Aviner. He says they know that the redemption is unfolding because they see it. Quote, If someone whispers in your ear that he has not seen the Messiah lately, either in the fields of the Golan or in the expanses of the Sinai, he may be an honest man. But if he goes a step further and says, since I've not seen it, it does not exist, his words are words of falsehood and seduction. Say to that person, quote, you may have not seen it, but others have. We declare with absolute certainty of our imminent redemption 
While the troubles, delays, and complications cannot obscure this mighty overall trends, the Messiah, whose power is now being revealed in actuality. That quote in the next one, by the way, I got from Avi Ravitsky in his book called Messianism, Zionism, and Jewish Religious Radicalism. Uh, by the way, Ravitsky didn't understand really a lot of the ideologies that he wrote about, but his quotes I've found to be accurate in any case. Another quote from the same settler rabbi explains where he gets his ideas from. It's not from the Torah. I mean, I'm a rabbi. Rabbis are supposed to bring proof texts and sources for whatever they say, but not the settlers. Here's what he said, quote, Yes, we have communication, meaning communication with God. Quote, Yes, we have communication. The prophets of Israel had communication even with regard to the future, and they passed the secret of this communication on to us. End quote. Yes, he really said that. So we're talking about people, a group of people, that have mixed and matched all sorts of different philosophies into their Zionism, and then the final ingredient that blows it all up is religion. Religion doesn't go good with nationalism. Judaism especially was designed to be a standalone religion. But they took the militarism, the messianism, the paganism, and they absorbed it all into their religious philosophy, which they still call Judaism, but the Judaism is buried under all these other philosophies. And this is only the settlers. I mean, you may find some onesies or twosies elsewhere, but these are the settlers. This is what makes them tick. They are driven by a religious commitment, and they really are committed, religiously committed, to a combination of pagan earth worship, militarism, and messianism. I'm sorry, but this ideology is so far from Judaism from any version of Judaism, because it doesn't even come from Judaism. What of Judaism there is in this attitude of theirs comes from their communion with God, their understanding the secret of, I don't know, prophecy? So they have people that speak to God, worship the land, understand militarism to be a lofty ideal, it's hard to expect something normal to come out of all of that. I wish I knew how to straighten these people out. The best I can do for now is to just tell people that this is not Judaism. Not at all. Thanks for listening to Committing High Reason. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others post about it on social media, or leave a rating or review. For the latest from Rabbi Shapiro, and to sign up for his newsletter, head on over to committinghighreason.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.